I have just had the most incredible conversation with Tim Spector. We discussed why ultra-processed food can trigger depression, how to supplement a vegan diet, also why we can't stop when we pop with Pringles, and fascinatingly, poo transfer for mood disorders. Wow. Hi, I'm Davinia Taylor and welcome to Hack Your Health, a podcast which can support a fast track to feeling your best, boosting your mood and uplifting your general outlook on life. My biohacking journey began over eight years ago, which led me to having a ridiculously inquiring mind, always asking questions and searching for the answers. For example, why do I sometimes lose focus and what makes me sign up to a marathon at 45? Or one of my first ever questions, what the hell makes me so allergic to alcohol that I can't ever drink again and how do I manage that? After all, what is addiction and how can it be tamed? Over the years, I've done tons of research and become my own N of one experiment, trying and testing some of the most out there and fringe hypotheses to find out what actually works for me. Me being an average middle-aged British woman with the usual ups and downs of 21st century living. And now I want to share with you what I've learned. I'll be joined by some of the best visionaries in the health and biohacking space, asking them to put forward their arguments and suggestions that could support your health and well-being. As with everything, there is never a one-size-fits-all approach, so I ask you, take these conversations as food for thought. The advice you hear should never be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. But whatever you do, stay inquisitive. And as always, I love your feedback and your experience about what we talk about. And huge thanks to Wild Deodorants, who are our partner in this episode. You're going to hear more about their fantastic products later on. Now let's go and hack your health. I am so excited to be welcoming today's guest. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London, but you may know him as the creator of the Zoe COVID Symptoms Study, the app that was able to track symptoms in the UK at the beginning of the pandemic. His true passion, however, is nutrition, educating us on the fact that everything we thought we knew about food is actually wrong. His books, The Diet Myth, and Spoonfed are fascinating reads. And his new book, Food for Life, is just as informative as he creates a unique, thorough, evidence-based guide to the real science of eating. Welcome, Professor Tim Spector, OBE. How are you? Marvellous, marvellous. Lovely to chat to you again. So I've got your book here, and it's a whopper. And I mean, the glossary is just a page turner in itself. That took some serious digging, didn't it? Took six years of my life. So, um, yeah, and whilst doing it, I realised why no one else had done it because it's, uh, <laughs> it's a Arduous. fool's game. Uh, you know, probably all sorts of other things you can do in six years. But, yeah, it was a massive undertaking because no one's really ever looked at food in that way, in a, in a sort of systematic way of giving people a sort of A to Z of food and saying, you know, looking the good, the bad and the ugly. and giving people a different way to look at food about what you should eat, what you should avoid, what you should pick in a supermarket and telling people more about the types of food that perhaps they hadn't thought about. And for the first time, really, writing a book that takes food from three different angles, the ethics of it, you know, whether you, you know, you worry about animal, animal cruelty, whether you worry about slave labor, child labor, whether you worry about your health aspects of that food you know is it food that makes you hungrier is it food that is going to cause problems because of the chemicals in it uh, and then finally which is really new and i think everyone is now tuned into much more is how does that food affect the planet so i think what what's really what i discovered is your food choices that we all make every day are the most important thing you can do for your health, and probably the most important thing you as an individual can do for climate change and the planet. And that's a big responsibility for people. And I think that's why you know, we all need to learn much more about the food we eat, and therefore we can make really the, the right choices. 
Okay, so let's start with the basics, I guess, um, the gut. So most of us consider the gut just being the stomach. Can you explain the gut from mouth to anus <laughs> in layman's terms and just how different parts of that system can affect us mentally and emotionally? Yeah, so as you said, the layman's, layman just thinks of the stomach as a single big bag that you just fill up and then it empties. And we've discovered really quite recently that there's much more to this. You know, we have about six meters or so of, of intestines inside us. Everything starts at the mouth when you eat something. And or even before that, actually, you smell. And it's interesting, if you ever try and eat a piece of food, blindfolded, someone puts it on your tongue and you've got your nose pinched, you really can't tell what it is. It's really incredible. You can't tell the difference between, you know, salami, cheese, uh, all kinds of products until unless they're really super spicy. Uh, your nose is crucial to that. And that shows when you have a cold or COVID or whatever, you, you know, where we lost our sense of taste so quickly. Then in the mouth, you obviously, you have a reflex to see should you spit it out or not. So if it if it's all slimy and, you know, you think it's got insects in it, you're your reflex will just spit it out. And the juices, you produce all this saliva, several litres a day, would you believe, that um, you're producing that um, goes down the system to flush it out. It starts to break down the food as well, and it has these microbes in there that are part of the process, and we're going to discuss more about the key bits of gut microbes. So in the saliva, it starts to break down, so piece of bread you've got there those enzymes are starting to even break it down into a little ball start that process and then it gets passed to the next bit of your intestines which is the esophagus which is the tube that leads to stomach people might know that because that's where you get heartburn when things come back from the stomach and acid reflux then the stomach is there where all the acid is which does a lot of the the breaking down of the foods and people thought that's where um, you killed all your microbes but we found that actually most of them are protected and uh, it kills off quite a lot of them and it's designed as a sort of sterilizing chamber but it's it's incomplete so foods like yogurt and things will still be alive when they pass through the stomach and uh, some things are things like alcohol are absorbed in the stomach but most stuff still goes on to the small intestine which is the next bit of the gut and that's where the sugars are absorbed and where you'll say things like bread so you know um, rice pasta most of that is that the sugars are absorbed there fats are easily to digest fats are absorbed there and some proteins and the stuff that stays there is is the hard to absorb that goes through to the next stage, past the liver, past the bile, into the large intestine, uh, which is the very lower bit. And that's where all the microbes are that break down the fiber in your food. The microbes are also waiting for little energy parcels they're getting, which are these defense chemicals in plants. They, they really live off plants predominantly. They they can eat meat, they can uh, eat fish, but most of them are really interested in a diverse range of plants. And they break open the fiber, they get energy from those plants in the form of these defense chemicals called polyphenols, which make you get in very bright colored plants and uh, bitter tastes. And then they produce, they allow uh, you to get the nutrients from the, these plants they get absorbed into your system. But crucially, they're playing a different part, not just as a digestive system, but they're also controlling your immune system. So these microbes are like mini pharmacies. They're taking the energy from the plants you're eating and they're converting it into chemicals. And it's thousands of different chemicals, just like a normal pharmacy, that are then first on the, on the wall of your gut You've got all these immune cells, which are important for food allergies, important for fighting uh, infections, important for autoimmune diseases, also fighting aging and cancer. So 
that's this crucial relationship is between the food that comes in there, microbes, their signals, immune cells, and then the rest of the body. And, you know, it's quite amazing what they're doing. And then they do that, they extract everything they can, send out these incredible signals around the body, and then the rest of the waste obviously then goes down from the lower colon, but water gets reabsorbed, so it's a really efficient system, and then it gets flushed out when you go to the toilet, and that is generally waste, but a lot of it is dead microbes. And so people don't realize quite how many microbes we have in our, but you know, someone's estimated that half of your your poo in the toilet is actually dead microbes. So that altogether weighs several pounds, about the same same as your brain uh, in weight. So yeah, so every time you go to the toilet, you're losing half of your microbes and um, you're becoming more human. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's reassuring. Um, just you mentioned the brain and you've you've uh, mentioned the immune system, which I'd really like to come back to. Um, we hear a lot about the gut-brain axis and the connection between what we eat and how it affects our mood. What sort of research are you looking at to determine um, basically the, the epidemic that we've got with mental health issues at the moment? Is there any light down that avenue? Yeah, there is actually lots. Um, we've known that there is this gut-brain connection and most people probably realize that the um, you know gut feelings are there for a reason, if you like. I mean, how, how does that work? Just in simple terms, how on earth does your gut connect to your brain and what mechanism is it? Is it indirect through the blood or is it through, uh, is it through your nervous system? How does it work? Well, there are a number of ways it connects. There's one that we've known for a long time, and there's this big nerve called the vagus nerve, which connects the all the way from the gut and goes travels up to the brain. So that's one way you get these these connections. And we know that microbes can send signals that way. And that's probably a primitive reflex that, you know, that's why when you're anxious, you vomit and you send these signals to sweat and um, you might poo yourself or, you know, um, severe stomach cramps when you're nervous or anxious. It happens very fast uh, and you're just not in control of it. Then you've got, you know, the fact that you can be, the microbes can also send signals, we think, in the, in the blood to the brain. They make chemicals. So these pharmacies in your gut are actually making lots of chemicals that affect the brain. And one of them is a neurochemical that's called serotonin, which is key in fighting anxiety and depression. And normally our brain makes it, but we get most of it from food and so they're producing this for us and that's a key way to keep your brain not getting anxious and depressed is have the right levels of this chemical so it probably produces many other chemicals we still don't know about but that's directly producing a chemical that then goes into your bloodstream and it crosses into your brain and will start regulating your mood so serotonin is that sort of safe hormone. You feel safe and, you know, at ease, I suppose, isn't it? It's kind of like the happiness hormone. And I guess antidepressants are like SSRIs. They're serotonin reuptake inhibitors, aren't they? So I suppose you could almost argue that if you have the right gut microbiome, there might not be a need for antidepressants per se. Yes. So that's a good theoretical argument that's recently been backed up by clinical studies so that there are now a series of studies showing that if you give individuals with mild anxiety or depression a probiotics which are basically capsules that contain live microbes that we think are beneficial they do as well as antidepressants in the response to depression but more interestingly, uh, the even better result you get if you convert people to a Mediterranean-style diet and you get benefits that exceed what you would expect with antidepressants. So really showing that the gut microbiome is really key to our mood and that many people who are going through bouts of depression, it is linked to their poor quality diets, their use of ultra-processed foods, junk foods, and that when they switch, they then switch their gut microbes, they produce different types of chemicals, 
and that can lift them out of depression. So, you know, we're starting to see that, you know, maybe the first line of treatment for depression should not be going to your GP and just getting the first antidepressant uh, to try, which we know, although you know, can be effective, a large proportion of people don't respond to them. They're not universally that great. Although, you know, if it's you've got severe depression, yeah, you should still seek treatment and um, they can be life-saving. But, you know, there seems to be a proportion of people that don't always respond to them. We now know that other experiments have done that these drugs only may only work if you have the right gut microbes as well. So some people just, because we all have very different sets of bugs in our in our guts, that means we're producing different chemicals. If we lack those chemicals, the antidepressant may not work in us. And I think this is becoming increasingly important that this is one of the best examples of, of why gut health is so crucial is in this whole story. Not only, you know, if you take, if you have a good diet, you might pre- prevent depression, but if you are have severe depression and you're on these drugs, you also need to have the right microbes to make the drugs work. And I think uh, this is real breakthroughs in, in our understanding of of depression and and the causes. Okay, just just keeping that in mind, how long does it take to change your gut microbiome so it becomes a positive in your life as opposed to a negative? How long does it take to repopulate a poor microbiome? I'm just thinking of people who want to try this rather than going down the antidepressant route if they're struggling with their mental health at the moment. The trials, uh, I think ran for uh, six months, but they saw changes after three months, so 12 weeks. That's kind of in line with SSRIs, really. And Yes, um, it is. So most people would start their antidepressant treatments and be asked, do a trial for three months. So I think uh, I, I would say three months is a, is a good time to uh, see if this change of diet has, uh, has helped you or not. And what about for the super impatient? Because I've been reading about fetal matter transfers. Is that something that is even on the horizon? Basically, you you take the, um, I suppose, want for a better word, the poo of someone who is physically and mentally very fit and healthy and swap it with someone who could be dealing with obesity and depression. And you try and hack their mood and eating habits by changing their gut microbiome. Is that something that is a, a real thing? Because it sounds very futuristic to me, if not a bit gross. Yeah, no, it is a real thing. It's been around for about, well, a long time, but mainstream for 10 years. And it is the number one treatment for a particularly nasty disease called Clostridia difficile infection. So people have a gut infection, they overuse antibiotics, and it, it makes this one bug take over your gut, and you can't really get rid of it. And more antibiotics just make it worse. So for those people, getting a poo transplant from someone healthy basically cures them, you know, within a few days. Wow. And so, so what's gone from a, something that killed people? Because you know, if you go to the toilet thirty times a day, many people get dehydrated and can die. So it's taken very seriously, and so. Gradually, that's become the number one treatment. So that's why uh, there are 500 centres in the US and probably about a dozen centres in the UK that do offer fecal transplants for that condition. There were lots of stories about how it might cure obesity because in mice, when you transfer it from one mice to another, you can really have a, a visible impact. But the effects on humans seem to be very small. So they've been very disappointing for obesity and diabetes where we thought there was so there've been about 100 trials and that you know there's lots of anecdotes of the occasional person getting a, a benefit but overall the averages are pretty disappointing there's the one exception is if there's a nasty autoimmune disease called ulcerative colitis and in those cases which affects the lower part of the colon gets very inflamed you get diarrhea uh, etc poo transplants fecal microbial transplantation, FMT, does cure about one in five people and has so is nearly as good as the drugs um, that we use. But for all the other conditions, including depression, 
There's no solid evidence yet they work, apart from these occasional anecdotes. You know, there was one study where, you know, they did some kids with autism spectrum disorder, and I think one out of the 10 was sort of miraculously cured, but the other nine weren't. So it's not looking quite as great as it was, you know, five years ago, just a few niche conditions. So I I don't think we should be relying on uh, super poo to get us out of this problem. Super poop tablets. <laughs> okay, um, I just wanted to touch on um, basically your microbiome because in your books you mention people who are born via C-section generally have not as diverse microbiomes. Now, obviously, you can't go back in time and have a natural birth. So what can they do immediately to rectify that? And can you just explain why that might be, just to get right back to the very beginning? Yes. So. C-sections have changed natural childbirth, which in mammals has been going on for millions of years, and had a, a really clear purpose that as well as delivering a healthy baby, it was to seed it with the microbes it needs to survive for the first uh, few weeks of life, and also to be able to digest and use mother's milk. Okay, so these these sort of twin reasons for it. And that's why it's such a messy process. And that's why the baby's mouth actually comes up uh, facing all the dirty, mucky bits uh, from the vagina and the anus and everything else. So it was designed to be a messy process so that... And it is, uh, yes. <laughs> it's it not is, glamorous. Although, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And it, But, you know, nature is there and it's... Most mammals have very similar you know, processes. And so babies are born sterile. There's no microbes in them at all. And if they didn't get them, they wouldn't really survive. So it's important that the first microbes they get are coming from the mother. And pregnancy changes the microbes in the mother to gear it up so that they have all they need really to boost their immune system and make them grow and stay alive. So this is part of the normal process. And that's why it's messy. But those microbes in there then allow the baby to break down that first bit of mother's milk and use it as energy. Because it's it's complex proteins and sugars. It's really quite hard to break down. But C-section takes that away. It's all sterile, all nice, you know, clean sheets and everything else. And you don't get that muckiness. And baby only starts to get microbes. And they might get skin microbes rather than gut ones depending on who holds them. So people have tried, experimented with putting swabs on on baby, swabbing the mother's rectum and vagina just before birth, getting a swab or just after birth, and then putting it on the baby's mouth and nose. And this is still practiced in Scandinavia. The long-term results, that's still unclear. Um, the theory sounds good. I don't think anyone has clearly shown that is beneficial and some places don't some doctors don't like it being done because it's it's a way of theoretically passing streptococcal infections to the baby and you know we all know that these strep infections are, are quite big in the news at the moment but surely that that would arm them against strep you know d- just to have the, the the immune system fired up well not if the mother's infected because you would be passing on would that not have happened through a natural birth anyway? I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking... Um... It would have, yes. It would have. But I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that's the reason that many many doctors don't like the dirty swabbing, you know, which seems a bit medieval, really, uh, to go back to it. Uh, but it does vary by country. So uh, the Scandinavians are quite keen on that. But we're still waiting the final results. But what's really important is that if you are having a C-section baby, um, you do realise there is a greater risk of obesity and allergies uh, in later life. So you probably do want to introduce them to nature and bugs uh, more. Really important, you breastfeed as well uh, because you get a double whammy if you have C-section and then you bottle feed because breastfeeding is another way of getting lots of microbes into the baby. They get them from the nipple and actually the breast itself for some reason, not manages to produce microbes and it gets into breast milk. 
We don't understand why, how. It's a total mystery. But again, you know, we have to sort of keep going back to nature and evolution has, has worked out stuff that we we can't still understand. So all the modern stuff we do, we you know, do at our peril. So I used to advise all this swabbing of babies and stuff. I, I'm less, uh, more neutral on it now. And is it true that children that grow up on farms and with pets and uh, animals around them generally have a more pop- diverse gut microbiome and therefore a better immunity? Yes, there's quite a lot of evidence for that. And they get less allergies as well. So if you, early exposure to things is, is pretty good. So if you, you know, have a C-section baby, yeah, get them, you know, mucky, throw them in a farm, farmyard, uh, get some smelly dogs to lick them. All this, all this kind of stuff is, uh, yeah, to recreate, you know, that that's more rural life, I guess. Fascinating. Okay, so I've got ADD. I've only discovered this since I had one of my children diagnosed. I ticked all the boxes and I'm like, my goodness, that was me. I was always like a dolly daydream. Could that have been something to do with my gut microbiome? I know I was I was not breastfed. I was bottle fed. So was it because of like the 70s upbringing and everyone got shoved on convenience food the, the day they were born? Would that be a precursor for my sort of naturally low dopamine and my dopamine seeking activities? Well, I think everyone in that generation was exposed to rotten food and poor dietary habits. And you know, we still end up with a spectrum of people, although we were a lot less healthy than perhaps the previous generation were, and more prone to put on weight, definitely more prone to have allergies, etc. It's sort of unclear whether ADD is just we didn't notice it before, didn't have it, didn't have a name. They were just, you know, uh, difficult kids. <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe uh, there was that actually. <laughs> <laughs> fidgety kids, you know, and and uh, you just get a whack on the head in the old days, and now you, you know, you get put on Ritalin. But um, it's so hard to know. But we do know that the the microbiome of kids with ADD or most of these the spectrum of disorders, you will find microbes that are don't look healthy and and. We don't quite know whether that's cause or effect, but often it does go with strange dietary preferences and things as well. So, yeah, very beige food. My son with ADHD smells slightly obsessional food. about yes. foods and things yeah. like that. So, and, and likes beige food, you know. So it's tricky to try and get him to eat. Well, we'll come on to this. The variety that you um... so that probably exacerbates the problem. It's unclear whether it causes it, but it certainly exacerbates it. Because once kids go into this rather obsessional way of eating, then they reduce the diversity of their diet. They reduce the range of chemicals their body can produce to influence their brain. So I think it's not, not dissimilar to you know, adult depression, that similar cycle. So I think it's really important to realize that if you're like that or you're the kid like that, you, know, it, you have to find other ways of, of getting that microbial diversity that is going to protect them and help them when their brain is telling them to to avoid it and be very restrictive in their diets and i think this is the general rule that comes out of everything i've been doing is you know to provide a diverse gut microbiome is what we all need and there's lots of different ways of doing it but that's the sort of central ethos behind you know preventive sort of medicine that we should be practicing I hope you're enjoying the chat with Tim. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? I just wanted to take a moment to talk about our episode partner today, which is the fabulous Wild Deodorants. Wild is the UK's number one natural deodorant brand that focuses on efficiency, sustainability, and obviously style. They're on a mission to clean up the bathroom, so they are free of single-use plastic bottles and unnecessary chemicals. My wild experience started about three years ago and I wouldn't go back to anything else. I've currently got on their fresh cotton and sea salt scent, which is amazing, but they have got literally loads of others, including mint and aloe vera, jasmine and mandarin blossom. They are fabulous. So why is wild different? Well, wild isn't an antiperspirant and it is aluminium and paraben free, so it won't block your pores. Wild is also vegan and cruelty free. But it doesn't contain things like aluminium salt, therefore won't block your sweat glands, allowing your body to sweat naturally. 
What it does contain is a natural ingredient, bicarb of soda, which neutralizes the sweat bacteria's pH so you don't pong. It's brilliant. Another thing I love is the refillable concept. You buy one reusable case for life and the deodorant refills are 100% compostable, making it a world first design. You can even get it personalized with your name on it, which actually makes a really good present. It's the only natural deodorant that I've tried that works and I have tried everything. All of them have let me down and I've ended up stinking. Sorry to be so graphic about that. <laughs> They've got a flexible subscription and a one-time purchase only option to suit you and you get them delivered straight to your door. So listen, go wild today. Just go to wearewild.com and use the code DAVINIA, D-A-V-I-N-I-A, at the checkout for 20% off. Enjoy. Now let's get back to Tim. Okay, so obviously this brings me nicely onto processed food. Couple of questions. Why are processed foods so addictive? And does that is it influenced in the brain or is it influenced in the gut? And also, what damage do these foods do to our gut? like beginning in the mouth, I guess. So ultra-processed foods, and by that we mean foods that have large numbers of ingredients, are made in giant factories from chemical ingredients rather than whole foods. So they use the powder of extracts from everything, and it's usually made under high pressure, different temperatures, and they can mix anything with anything because they've got all these glues that stick it together, make it look like real food again. And this is anything from breakfast cereals to um, ready meals to most of the biscuits, confectionery uh, and snacks that we're eating. And even you know things like vegan sausages. So the way they're put together is by food scientists. And they take the brightest people in the, in the area and they work for these food companies. And they're really good at finding what's called the bliss point, the point where the fat, the sugar and the salt are just perfect so that you find it super tasty and you really want to have more of it. Is that dopamine driven? Because I, I do chat about that. That release of dopamine makes you seek it. Yes, there's a, they've done studies on humans that the bits of the brain light up more when you give them ultra-processed food compared to whole food. And so the reward centres are slightly tickled even more highly, which... You've got a reward. You want to keep dinging that bell in your in your head. So you, you know, it's like the difference between I don't know, eating a peanut and uh, Pringles or something. You know, you know, it's very hard to just eat one. You keep coming back. Well, they say that in their marketing, don't they? Once you pop, you can't stop. So they're totally transparent in their marketing. Let's face it. They are, except you know, most people think they're made of potatoes, and they're not. You know, they're made of all kinds of rice and soy and uh, everything stuck together and then it's made afterwards to make it look like a potato contains very little potato that's a really good example i think of uh, a very successful ultra processed food that is is tasty people wouldn't buy it if it wasn't too tasty but what they have in it is something that makes you overeat and this is what we're, we're finding so and what it lacks is fiber so you have these foods you ingest them very quickly the sugar and the fat gets absorbed very fast into your into your gut in the in the small intestine just underneath the stomach so that you get within 10 15 minutes a sugar rush your sugar will peak and uh, your fat levels go up and there's virtually nothing to travel further down there's no fiber this because there's no original bits of the the plant there's no skin of a plant there's no shell there's nothing like that grains it's all gone. So there's nothing goes to the, the, the poor old microbes are starving down the bottom as you're tucking into your Pringles. And they're saying, you know, I'm deprived of food, but my brain thinks there's lots of food. What's going on here? And the combination of these things makes you overeat by about 20%. So um, there was a big study done. They compared an ultra-processed food menu for two weeks in some people who were locked into a hospital setting and the equivalent one uh, made from scratch at home, identical calories, and people over it by two to 300 calories on the ultra-processed uh, food version. They kept coming back to the buffet for more, whereas the other ones didn't. So it's the speed at which it, it gets absorbed, 
means that your your normal reflexes of um, feeling full don't work. So actually, it overcomes your. If you eat food more slowly, after twenty minutes, you get these fullness signs, and ultra processed foods are designed to overcome that. So that's how it affects your appetite. But we also know it affects your gut microbes and uh, sends signals to your brain through the gut microbes to say, "Give me more of this stuff." If you look on a label, you'll find lots of things like emulsifiers, preservatives, and you'll find artificial sweeteners increasingly as they try and say they've got reduced sugar or reduced calories. And it turns out that they are really harmful to your gut microbes. They make them stick together. They make them produce funny, odd chemicals that actually you know, are more likely to make you hungrier, put on weight, give you diabetes. So... There are lots of ways we're just finding out about why ultra-processed food, although super tasty and often super cheap, is really uh, not good for us and we should be doing much more about it. I mean, not to put my tin hat on too quickly, but I'm quite sure that the big companies like the cereal companies and the bread companies have known this for decades. Um, They must have research out there to say that these bliss point foods are on a bell curve and this is the ingredient percentages we need to put into our so-called pseudo foods to make sure that people keep coming back. So it's not a case of willpower. It's a case of, I suppose, retraining your brain to understand that this is basically a, a nicely packaged drug. Yeah, no, they definitely have. And that's why they employ the, you know, and pay top money to these excellent scientists to produce it for them. And they're producing things that you don't get in nature because you just don't get this mixture of high fats, sugars in nature. You get one or the other. You don't get them in this incredible combination that you know our brain just goes uh, crazy for, and uh, we love it. But I put it similar to the fact that they, they can put all these healthy labels on this food is the thing that upsets me. I, I'm not. I have nothing against transparent. You have a you know a can of Tango, Fanta, Coca Cola, Pepsi, a Mars bar. You know that's not good for you, right? Nobody's really going to say, "Oh, it's really healthy." Um, but then you start putting some similar things, and you put low calorie, low fat, uh, sugar free, uh, sugar free, and plant based. Uh, yeah, it's all green isn't it? Contains essential vitamins on the cigarette on the, these ridiculous cereal packets. Uh, or children's yogurt that says contains vitamin D. And they are false selling items that really are akin, I think, to sort of 1980s cigarettes where they were saying low in tar, um, you know, special filters, um, milder, you know, causes less cough, rather than say, labeling them all the same way and being transparent. So people are gullible, they like the taste, and they think they're doing well for their family by offering low-calorie, low-fat products when, in fact, they should be absolutely avoiding anything that says low-calorie and low-fat on it because the ingredients they've done to replace it are far worse than the natural ones that you would get if you're buying full-fat products. And a great example is yogurts. You know, the best yogurt to, to eat is a full-fat Greek-style yogurt, no ingredients, nothing. And then you add whatever you want to it. The worst is children's yogurts that contain artificial sweeteners, sugar, bits of fake fruit in it, soy proteins, whatever, and have, you know, with added vitamins. You know, they're like the cigarettes, giving kids cigarettes as far as I'm concerned. An example I often use uh, when I'm talking to people on Instagram is so many people still don't read the label. They look at the front, the advertising on the front and all the money goes into that. And then you turn it around and, you know, it's, you've got this tiny ingredients list. But one for me uh, is oat milk. So a lot of people give their children oat milk. And it's only when you turn the ingredients around, you see, obviously, 
oats is going to spike your insulin anyway, but it's all the emulsifiers and the, the rapeseed oil and the added sweetness that, of course, this is so addictive. I mean, I give my kids raw milk. We, I live in Lancashire now and we've got a, a dairy around the corner. And so they have raw milk if they're going to have it and raw yogurt and raw butter. I'm really into that, you know, but it's this whole greenwashing about oat milk being far superior. What's your take on that? And, you know, will, when will we get real transparency? particularly when you're, you're feeding children, you know, and because people are giving them Weetabix, organic Weetabix with added protein and oat milk for breakfast, you know. I, like many people, was drawn along, you know, and I think writing the book and doing my chapter on the dairy, I actually changed my mind because, you know, if you look at the three points of view, everyone's going to have different points of view. There's an ethical point of view. So if you believe that we shouldn't be locking up animals you know, continuously breastfeeding to uh, produce milk for our uh, our consumption that we probably don't need that much anymore as a protein source. You've got uh, the health aspects to it. You know, is milk healthier than oat milk? And I think on balance, uh, milk is probably healthier than oat milk uh, for some of the reasons you have mentioned. Uh, and for me, it really spikes my glucose, whereas milk doesn't. And so it is quite sugary if you have a lot of it. But the third thing is for the planet and the environment. And on balance, oat milk is less damaging for the planet than cow's milk. So everyone's going to have a different take on those three sort of elements. And uh, so I still think people can make their, their choices, but I think it needs to be done on a uh, you know more transparent playing field. And um, you know, milk, I think, is... Is good for kids, but I, I don't think it's particularly good for adults. And I don't, you know, it's been oversold. I think oat milk has been oversold as well. And yeah, as you said, it is made by ultra processing means. But switching from having less cows, you know, and converting that land into forests and other things would be better for the planet. So this is why the book is all full of these sort of difficult decisions in a way that everyone has to make their personal choice, but best to do it when you know the facts rather than being driven by advertisers. Exactly. My take on it is, you know, I live in Lancashire. We have some of the best grass on the planet. And I don't know why we're still importing lamb from New Zealand when I drive to school every morning and see 20,000 sheep sometimes in the road causing gridlock. So I generally try and eat as locally as possible. And I know where my meat comes from. I know where my milk comes from. And I know where my butter comes from. And it's it's really hard to get away from the greenwashing of, say, soy and all these imported single crops products that come in like the beyond meat burger i mean to me that's just a, a contradiction because you're obviously ripping away forests from highly industrialized places like south america we're put, putting crops of soy there and then shipping that over to the uk to satisfy our plant-based rhetoric i understand your plant-based is whole foods but it's the whole greenwashing of highly processed plant foods that really gets my go it's like the chemicals in there are phenomenal and it's really expensive nutrient for nutrient well i partly agree with you but i partly disagree so i agree on the health aspects um that you know you take the, the what i would call version one of these these meat alternatives you know they don't taste great they do contain a lot of chemicals you wouldn't want to be eating on a regular basis but they're probably broadly equivalent to cheap processed meats that you get in in ready meals or really cheap lasagnas and things like that so that you know they're probably relatively equivalent to the low end of the market on, on processed foods but where they do score highly is that if they do contain soy they're using 50 times less land uh, to get that protein as an equivalent than if it has to be soy has to be grown for your beef or your pork or to produce the same. So by directly growing soy for vegetarian plant alternatives rather than growing it as feed for animals, that is a huge saving for the planet in terms of climate change. So that, that's the essential difference. And it's, you know, if you amount, how much land use or CO2 use for each gram of protein, Going back to the original plant and eating that for humans is 
is the way forward for climate change. So, you know, I, I've only recently sort of converted to this view after doing all the research, but the idea there are, you know, it's incredibly inefficient to be cultivating cows. Some 80% of all our agriculture in these plants goes towards feeding animals that we then kill for the protein rather than uh, us eating it directly. So only 20% of all the land mass in the world, I think, is used for us growing plants that we eat ourselves. So it's an incredibly inefficient system that we've inherited for hundreds of years, and we just need to look at it again. And that's why you know, I'm a big believer that the number one thing we can do if we are interested in climate change is not take less foreign holidays, it's not feed your dog something different, it's actually... Um, reduce our uh, meat eating and replace it with um, actual with plants. So we'll have to agree to disagree on that because I'm really into sort of regenerative agriculture and keeping it as local as possible as in you know not three miles from my house type of sort of and and also eating nose to tail buying the cheaper cuts of the beef that normally get thrown away this sort of thing is you know I make stews now the kids hate it they hate stews but God damn it, they're going to eat stews. And it will have the vegetables in as well, you'll be pleased to know. Which, um, I mean, I think we've forgotten how to cook, basically, haven't we? And I'm really bad at cooking. I'm extremely poor at cooking. So for me, it is a challenge. But I think we we have relied on microwave meals or even oven meals. And, you know, you just walk down Marks and Spencer's aisle and it is so beautifully packaged with, you know, these images of farms on the front. And the reality is it's not like that. There is far too much factory farming and highly processed food that just trigger our addictive mechanisms. So we just overeat all the time. Right. So you were once vegan, weren't you? Would you ever go back to being vegan just with your preference to plant-based and for a lot of my followers are vegans or, or have children who are vegans. How would they supplement um, a vegan food choice? I was vegan for a limited time, really, as I was sort of going through my journey and, and researching my book. So uh, it, I lasted six weeks and um, I just found uh, – I couldn't do without cheese. That was my hear, my hear. I, hear, hear. I could have I could have actually done without meat, you know. Uh, but I and I was also traveling around the US for a couple of weeks, and it became impossible <laughs> to get anything approaching, you know, a, a decent diet. Um, you know, you all the airports just had cheese pizza, <laughs> and some of that's actually spray on cheese in a can, which is fascinating. It probably was not. It wasn't real cheese, I imagine, anyway. But, um, yeah, so – and then um, my researchers have led me to – so the ethics, you know, obviously there is a, a thing – a lot of vegans do it for ethical reasons. Uh, you can now do it for environmental reasons, as we've been discussing, that the single most important thing everyone could do would be to, you know, reduce certainly the, the meat consumption, of, you know, the worst offenders, which is um, – Beef and lamb, which is extremely inefficient to to have most of our planet feeding up. But in health wise, there's there's actually a limited view of um, veganism itself is not necessarily healthy. There are healthy vegans and there are unhealthy vegans. You know, just giving up meat itself doesn't give you this health. It's only provided if you do have a wholesome range of diverse plants. So. We did a study of 11,000 Brits and Americans uh, five years ago and found that, asked them what they ate, and there was no difference between meat eaters, vegans, vegetarians, if they all ate large amounts of different plants every week. And that's the key for me. And it's obviously, if you eat a lot of meat, it's really hard to eat a lot of plants as well. So it's what else you put on your plate. I don't think there's any harm health-wise, to have a small amount of high-quality meat uh, or fish every week. But if you overdo it, there's some evidence excessive meat is not good for you. But more importantly, you can't get that many diverse plants on your plate if it's full of a massive steak and a few chips. And I think that's 
that's my, um, I was going to say beef, but that's uh, <laughs> uh, with, with, with this whole idea. And there are many unhealthy vegans who are just eating gluten-free cupcakes and sugary things and ultra-processed, ultra-processed vegan alternatives uh, that are terrible. And so I think we've got to move away from this religious view that you're, you know, you're in this carnivore, you're vegan, you're um, pescatarian. You know, I'm hard to define. You know, I call myself reductionarian, um, flexitarian. Um, I eat meat once or twice a month. Um, I eat fish once or twice a month. Most of the time, but I, I also have, I do have dairy, but I don't really drink milk. But, you know, my main objective is to get a diversity of foods on my plate that are whole foods. They have relatively little processing in it. And, you know, and if everyone moves in a direction, you don't have to belong to one religious group. I think we realize that the science is telling us there's a whole spectrum of these things. It's not an all or nothing phenomenon. And so, yeah, some days I will be vegan. Some days I'll be vegetarian. Some days I'll be a carnivore. But... Certainly compared to 10 years ago, you know, I've really changed my diet and I now have these three things in mind, ethics, you know, environment and health when, I, when I'm making my food choices. Okay, so um, I meet a lot of mums who are worried about their teenage daughters who seem to be particularly susceptible to this vegan movement. What should they be doing, bearing in mind they're like 16, 17, 18 years old, and um, obviously you've got hormonal cycles to contend with and low mood, to be honest, what can they supplement with to help them with that very staunch vegan attitude? As a mom, thinking as a mom or a dad or a parent, you know, what are they missing? First, I'm saying I'm dead against anyone you know, bringing up infants as vegans. Oh, yeah. Like gosh. Is, um, but, you know, when you've got a teenager, they know best. Teenagers, no. A lot of teenagers do turn to veganism and it's important to give them the right advice. Go to tell them that, the one thing the body cannot make is B12. And if you're a vegan, you are going to be low in B12. So you have to supplement with uh, vitamin B12. And at some point after a year or two, pretty good to get them, get a blood test to work out um, what those levels are and whether it, you know, that is a problem. B12 is the first one. The other is if they're having um, milk contains iodine, for kids, and a lot, a lot of the plant alternatives don't contain some of these other nutrients that milk does. So there has been increased cases of iodine deficiency, and so make sure you, you have salts and things like this that might have iodine in it. But I think what's key is to, is to keep an eye on the diet and say, okay, don't have too much sugar and, and, and processed foods. Have a big variety of, of meals. Don't get too limited in your food choices. Try and you know, ensure there's plenty of healthy plants on there and other sources of protein. And people forget that, you know, things like beans, lentils, mushrooms, quinoa, you know, other alternative grains are really good sources of protein. And uh, particularly when they're growing uh, and doing things. So I think it's important to, you know, not just throw up your arms and say, well, you know, I can't do anything about it. Just say, well, there are healthy vegans and there are unhealthy vegans and you've got to point them towards that, that healthy side. And yeah, maybe get some blood tests to check they're not deficient after a while. When they're starting periods, you know, that everything's normal, etc. And uh, they're, they're still growing and gaining weight. I mean, to be fair to the youth of today, when I was 18, I generally lived on pot noodles. So there you go. <laughs> we survived. We just about survived. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, gain university and things you know yeah oh yeah diet. yeah so oh, beer shocking. and pot so, noodle sandwiches in fact so that was nice um <laughs> i just wanted to quickly touch on fasting is it a friend or is it a foe i know you've got a, a really interesting study coming out so what what's your take on fasting huge huge trend towards intermittent fasting i generally intermittent fast throughout the day my brain functions better as you can tell this morning um but i um i generally like it because i i have a predisposition to overeating once i start i don't stop so it's kind of like a control mechanism for me what do you think about it 
Well, first clarify, intermittent fasting means lots of different things to different people. Yeah. I mean, I fat fast. So full disclosure there, I, I just don't spike my insulin. I just have like MCT oil in my coffee throughout the morning. So it's an umbrella term for all kinds of fasting, which can go from some intensive, you know, US style ones where you don't eat for anything for 48 hours to the sort of five two type diet when you you basically reduced what you're eating for a couple of days a week, uh, but didn't didn't fast completely, to what's commonly termed now time restricted eating, which I think most people now call is the commonest form of intermittent fasting at the moment, whereby you change the time window which you eat. So you're not changing what you eat, you're changing how you eat. And so our ancestors used to eat in a much more limited time window of about 10 hours. And recently, with with marketing of snacks and extra, we have about six meal events in a day. And generally, most people in the UK eat for about 14 hours a day. So we want to reverse that and get people eating in a, either probably around a 10-hour window and have 14 hours to relax um, your body, rest your body, rest the cells in your body, rest your gut microbes who uh, need that to, time to repair your gut and make it uh, much more efficient. So this is a very relatively new new idea, but all the research so far is showing that it's beneficial on average for most people who do it. They actually um, have more energy. They can lose some weight, although that's not the main objective. And uh, their metabolism, blood sugars, appetite control seems to be better. Mainly on mood, most people, I think, find the difference if they're not eating all the time. And uh, you know, and we've done this big study with the free Zoe app, which is called the Zoe Health Study, which everyone listening can download for free. There's still time to do this study. So far, about 120,000 people have done it. And we, we had a... a a week where you just did your normal thing, recorded when you ate. Then we had um, two weeks of doing time restriction eating, either either early in the morning or or finishing, uh, you know, either finish your meals early or you uh, skip or delay breakfast. And the results were really pretty good. Most people managed to do the ten hours, and we saw you know, pretty good increases in energy levels. But particularly interesting is the people who suffered from IBS, bloating got much. That was the thing we've noticed most that they got less bloating. Yeah, I, I, I find that's a, a real benefit to me. The mental health, as in the clarity, and otherwise I get really distracted. If I start eating in, say, at breakfast time, by 11 o'clock, I'm already like wandering down the road to Pret a Manger to see if I can get myself a little picky bit. You know, it's like it takes over my my thinking. It becomes a priority. It's like I've set off a chain reaction. And then, of course, the bloating kicks in and then I'm shattered by lunchtime and basically useless. Yeah, but every, everyone's different, though. So I think, you know, I, I think that the key thing is not, this isn't for everybody. And that's why we did the study is to, to look at this whole key thing of personalization and um, individuality that some people I know find it really hard not to keep snacking all the day. They really... They get very hungry and hangry if they're not doing. Others don't. And I think the, it just comes back to this idea we mustn't follow some guidelines that are set in stone. We've got to find out what works for us and our body. And that's really the whole ethos behind Zoe and, and our you know nutrition program as well is to find out what's right for you, not just believe what happened to your sister or your neighbor or you know uh, what your guru says. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the one size fits all approach, I think, has been completely debunked now because it, it really is. It's to we have different stresses, different triggers and different days of the week, you know, to contend with certain moods and aspirations, etc. Um, which is more important to the gut microbiome, fermented foods or fiber? Probably fiber, but I like, to, I like both. And could you tell me how you would get your fermented foods? Give us, because it can get really expensive. Kombucha is expensive. Um, you know, I, I, I buy kefir and it's really expensive. Bearing in mind, I am no chef. Well, some of these things are dead easy to make. So kefir is, is a doddle to make. Please elaborate. You go online, you look up, you know, kefir granules. You get, they come in a sachet. You get a, a litre of milk. And you pour them into the milk, mix it round, basically leave it for 
24 hours, put it in the fridge for 24 hours, then you've got kefir for a week. And you eat that every day, don't you, for breakfast? Yes. That's yeah. Super. So, you know, you can buy it now in most places, but some of these things are really cheap to make. Um, kombucha is actually cheap to make, although people get a bit frightened about it. Yeah, it's like an alien propagating in your cupboard, you know. But actually, sauerkraut and pickles and kimchi, you just use your waste from your fridge and chop it up. doesn't matter what it is, really, cabbage, old bits of pepper, tomatoes, onions, mushrooms. Chop it up, uh, weigh it, add 2% of that weight in salt, pack it in a jar, leave it for two weeks. Then you've got all the, you know, micro pickles uh, you'd want for the next month or so. So a lot of these things aren't expensive. Yes, the f- when you first do it, buy some, but once you get into it, make your own and it, it's not at all expensive. And I think this is the, the lesson. We, you know, cheese, uh, you, can, you can get inexpensive cheese. You don't need to eat a lot of it to get the benefits health-wise. And similarly, yogurts, you know, as long as you get a, a plain full-fat yogurt, that's got plenty of bugs in it. And uh, it's going to be good for you. Obviously, you've spent years researching this. What fact have you discovered or that you've become aware of that's made you go, wow? Uh, Well, recently, I'd say that after doing the Zoe test, I discovered that I had a parasite in my gut. And it's called blastocystis. So this is a nasty bug that eats, lives off microbes in your gut. And... If I'd gone to see a doctor a few years ago, they'd have said, you've got to get rid of that quickly. It's going to cause brain nasty illness. We discovered that about 20% of British people have this and it's associated with good health and it actually eats the fat inside your body, degrades it. You have lower blood pressure, less body fat, less internal fat, and um, your cholesterol levels are lower and it's a sign of great health. So to me, that was one of the... Where do we buy this little thing <laughs> immediately? Well, I, I have to give you a poo sample, won't I? That, that oh, also, things have just got very messy. But we all used to have it. Ah, as, as an ancestral man, used to have it. All our ancestors And we've chased it. it away with antibiotics, I guess. Off. We've killed it off. Uh, dodgy food, you know, sterile living, yeah, whatever. So that was my... Having a parasite is, you know, is good. And this is just... An example of all the new help, what the new science is teaching us, things that you know go totally against what we would have thought. And so that's that's why food and gut health is such an exciting area. It is indeed. Okay, so this has been an amazing conversation as usual, Tim. Um, are there any sort of takeaways you just want to give to my audience, just top tips that you might want to help them repopulate their gut microbiome? Yeah, four top tips uh, that if you say if you're reading my book, um, <laughs> although there's many more tips in there. But um, if you just want four tips, they are try and eat 30 different types of plant a week. And that includes nuts and seeds. And it also includes um, herbs, spices, and uh, other things you wouldn't have, have thought about. Try and pick foods that are high in these polyphenols I mentioned, which are these rocket fuel for your gut microbes. They're darkly colored, brightly colored, plants, um, fruits and vegetables, and also slightly bitter. So nuts, seeds, berries, but also dark chocolate is in that category, as is coffee. Oh, excellent. coffee is actually very good for you. Super. Um, third thing is to have a regular fermented food every day, a small amount. It's yogurt, kefir, kombucha, kraut, kimchi, or whatever. doesn't really matter. Just have something, a little bit of every day. And fourth, give your gut a rest overnight if you possibly can. And they're the four positive tips. And and obviously reduce the amount of chemicals in your food by reducing ultra-processed food. So they're they're your tips. If you do that, you can't go far wrong. Okie dokie. Now then, just could you just uh, let us know where we can find out more information about your studies and obviously your books? They're all on Amazon, I assume. Yeah, so um, I think the book... uh, yeah, it's still in the top 50 on Amazon, so it's um, easy to find, food for life, and you can get it in most uh, bookstores as well. Go to your independent bookstore because they do want to keep them alive. And it's also in Waterstones. Um, if you want to 
do some trials for free and download the free Zoe app. That's the Zoe Health Study app. Uh, if you want to do the, the fasting experiment, join that community of 100,000 people doing that with. Download that anywhere. If you want to do the uh, Zoe um, nutritional program, which uh, costs money, there's a waiting list, but you can join that. Uh, 50,000 people have already done it so far. And that gives you a microbiome test and home, home testing kit. That's at joinzoe.com. And if you want to know more about what I'm doing, just follow me on uh, Instagram, easy, uh, tim.spector. Or for those others who are still using Twitter, I'm still on uh, I'm Tim Spector at Twitter. You've not been uh, cancelled yet. It. And uh, we also have a Zoe podcast as well, which uh, is every week, which is... Um, on nutrition, so specifically on nutrition, if you're really interested in that field, that's called the Zoe uh, Science and Nutrition Podcast. So there are all the ways, and uh, yeah, you can usually get find out what's going on through uh, any of those routes. Superb. Tim, thank you so much, and um, good luck with the rest of the research. Brilliant. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hack Your Health. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and please share it far and wide so everyone else can get healthier. The more people we can educate and empower will lead us to a healthier life. Okay, so we make this show for you and I'd love to get your feedback. So please do review us or DM me on Instagram at Davinia Taylor. And once again, thank you to our partner, Wild. Make sure you check them out and don't forget to use discount code Davinia, D-A-V-I-N-I-A, for 20% off your order and I can guarantee you will love it. This has been an Underground Fan Club production.